bad and bullshit. Welcome to the Bad and Bitchy Podcast. I'm Erin, and happy Asian Heritage Month. Throughout the month of May, Erica and I will be featuring a bunch of different stories related to Asia and people of Asian descent, including featuring Asian guests. We definitely want to talk about the COVID-19 situation in India, which is absolutely horrific. And today we are featuring an interview with Tanya Chen, a reporter with BuzzFeed News in Chicago, to discuss anti-Asian hate crimes. The interview discusses the shootings in Atlanta and a bit of the fallout from that in terms of how Asians have to now operate in the world. Um, we, We talk a little bit about the model minority myth, a little bit about just the relationship between the increase in anti Asian sentiment and COVID 19. And then we talk about, we get a little bit more personal and we talk about identity a little bit for Asian Americans right now. Because if you don't know a lot of Asian Americans or you don't follow a lot of Asian Americans or Asian Canadians on social media, you may not be aware that children of immigrants or immigrated to North America at a young age and grew up in white and black cultures are trying to unpack what that means for them and to them and you know trying to reconcile their asianness and at home with their family and their whiteness or and or blackness with their friends and social circles it's been really interesting to see all of this happening. And so please check out Tanya's pieces that we reference in the interview there in the show notes, along with her Twitter handle. Here is our interview with Tanya Chen of BuzzFeed News. We're joined today by Tanya Chen, a reporter with BuzzFeed News. Tanya, thanks so much for spending time with us today. Thanks for having me. So I was hoping that you might be able to start um, and give our listeners a bit of background information, a little bio on, you know, yourself and your family and how, you know, particularly, you know, how you came to be interested in covering anti-Asian hate crimes. You know, you've done a lot of reporting recently on the Atlanta shootings, um, hate crimes against like women and elderly Asian um, people, and then a little bit more on the identity side. So just a little bit of that background. Sure. Um, Well, as it so happens, um, my my background and who I am directly informs the work I do. Um, Not everyone has both this challenge and privilege of of having work so uh, embedded. In, in who they are, but this is, um, yeah, that is that is my reality every day is, is like kind of reflecting on aspects of myself in my work, in my writing. Um, so my family, we're Chinese, we're Chinese, I'm Chinese American, my parents are Chinese American, but I think I more strongly identify as being Chinese hyphen American. Um, my parents are first generation, we're all first generation immigrants. Um, I immigrated 
at a young age. Um, I was five. Um, I first came to the U.S. and then I uh, we immigrated to Canada for a period of time, and then I'm now back in the U.S. Um, so, how that informs a little bit of of like why I'm interested in covering this and why it occupies so much of my brain space is it's hard to not. <laughs> it's just like you know it, it it's I think for most um, for most people who are first, second, third generation, um, it is a marking of who we are because we look different. And because we look different, we get treated differently. Um, and the product of being treated differently is trying to, when we grow up, trying to figure out why and how, and then how we can make progress so that future generations no longer um, are treated so differently or we can create equity um, in those differences. I. Um, I think as a first generation immigrant, what that means is I have very close ties to my um, Chinese heritage. Most of my extended family are still in China. We visit like every, I visit every like three years or so. Um, my parents go back pretty frequently because they, they grew up there. They identify really strongly as just like being Chinese who happen to now live in the US, but their entire families are there their roots are there. And so for me, um, being able to like kind of move through these two spaces has been really interesting. Um, when I am home, it's a very Chinese environment. We speak Chinese with each other. We eat Chinese food. We um, celebrate all of the big Chinese holidays. Um, my parents have fostered like communities of, of other first generation Chinese immigrants around us. <laughs> Um, in places we've lived. So there's like a really rich, um, yeah, like community I have access to. Um, but for, I think, children of immigration, um, I, grow, I grow up kind of having to figure out where the space I occupy. Mm -hmm. um, there are parts of my identity that feel very, very North American, um, entrenched in whiteness and sometimes even entrenched in blackness because I grew up with both imagery and both like very strong calling to white and black culture. And I think for a lot of Asian um, Americans, we are trying to navigate, like trying to find, cultivate our own space and trying to navigate between uh, what it feels like between blackness and whiteness and in America specifically and in Canada. Um, yeah, I think like that's a it's a very long winded way to say that it is something I'm still trying to figure out. And I have the privilege of my work as, you know, a vehicle to help me kind of unpack a little bit of this stuff and and share with people and to be able to connect to people um, who are going through pretty similar, similar things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think of celebrities like Aquafina or Eddie Wong who are kind of also navigating that that whiteness and blackness space while also being Asian um, and I know that like Aquafina gets gets a lot of flack for uh, the way she speaks and yeah um, so going to this idea that you mentioned about like getting used to like how like our skin and the way we look influencing how we're treated you know I think as Asians there's 
we, we tend to just kind of brush it off, you know, like things aren't that bad. Sure, we get maybe called some names, people tell us that our food smells, but like generally we can kind of navigate life in a pretty unaffected way, really. You know, like we're still able to gain success, get a good paying job, um, go to good universities, get good education. But, you know, I think we're seeing now, and I think that a lot of white people in particular are starting to realize that, you know, these ideas they have of Asians do contribute to this model minority myth. And I know that you wrote a story um, in the wake of the uh, Atlanta shooting um, that kind of uses, talks about the model minority myth, but also talks about the hypersexualization of Asian women. Um, can you, do you want to talk a little bit about that? I, I wrote that um, the day after uh, news broke. Um, so it was, it was a pretty intense like writing experience because it required me and I, I have to say like no one pressured me to do this. There's a lot of sensitive efforts at, in, in, in the newsroom I work in to not offload any of this onto people of color, especially as they're still like processing something that's very raw and something that um, I imagine my black colleagues have, colleagues have had to experience and um, process often. Um, so for me, um, I really gained like, just like a profoundly like intimate understanding of what that's like, because the morning after it was pretty intense to sit through, like sit with how I was feeling and then ask myself, like, do I want to like parlay, like what I'm processing onto paper and potentially publish this? And on one hand, I was like, I don't want to do this because it feels like a lot right now. And I kind of just want to like sit here and I want to just kind of start this like strange collective grieving process um, as like we're still reacting. Um, but on the other hand, it just like there are things that made me so upset that I just like felt the need to uh, to write about it and speak about it and hopefully imprint some kind of um, meaning and impact. Um, because that morning, a lot of like traditional news outlets were, because they're reporting off of police, um, off of what police were saying, which was like, can't constitute as a hate crime. We don't know if it was racially motivated. The shooter says it's not, so it's not. And it, yeah, it was really frustrating to, to hear that and to know um, that there is inherent racism in what he, he did. And it, because it affected like so many of us um, instantly and and to discount like the impact of of what it did because we don't have these like qualifying markers or like admissions to it is is so bizarre to me is is like that's a way that we we um validate people's experiences and we call things for what it is which is mm -hmm. he killed a majority of Asian women. 
Um, and so writing that piece, it was like an effort to like say that <laughs> pretty clearly. And also to, um, with the help of like really good write editors that I have to like unpack why. Um, and so that means um, the root causes of why Asian women were targeted that day. And that uh, hypersexualization comes in the form of like imagery that we've been fed um, throughout Hollywood. Um, and then and then just like statistics of like crimes actually committed against Asian women um, disproportionately. And, um, and just like socialized and racialized ways that we've, um, we've stereotyped and that we've um, created tropes around Asian women. And the most, I think, dangerous symptom of that is that Asian women then begin to internalize that. Mm. And um, so it's a really bad cycle that kind of like feeds itself. And, and, and through all of like, with all of this is, is what I was trying to like write in my essay and, 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 and like basically with the thesis that like it is what happened in Atlanta was a hate crime, whether or not the shooter went out there that day with a um, memorandum that said, I'm going to target Asian women. Yeah, I think, you know, not having that racist manifesto and saying that it's it, he wasn't targeting Asian women or that it wasn't, you know, racially motivated is indicative of, you know, the broader public and how and their own internalized views of Asians, right? Like a lot of people hold these views, but don't see them as problematic. And I think now they're finally starting to understand a bit. And I think it's it's harder for people than it is for like anti-Black racism, for example. You know, I was, I was having a conversation with a guy the other day and he was like, oh, my friend loves Asian women. And I was like, um, he's like, oh yeah. Like he just thinks they're like really hot or whatever. And I was like, it sounds racist to me. And he's like, oh, like, no, you know, he used to live in Asia. He likes their style, whatever. And I was like, yeah, no, that's, that, that's, that's racist. That's racist. And he was just like, oh, like, I, I don't know about this. Like, can you tell me? And then when I explained that, you know, it's misogyny and sexism and hypersexualization, he was just like, oh, he's like, yeah, I, I didn't know. And I was like, yeah. There's a lot that people don't know and they don't realize the things that they're being fed. The, the Atlanta shooting was kind of just the culmination in a series of hate crimes against Asians that have taken place over the course of the past year, right? Um, you know, there was a report recently in Canada that said that in the past, like the first three months of 2021, there were like, 500 cases of like anti-Asian hate crimes. Um, the Vancouver Police Department says that there is a 717% rise in hate crimes against East Asians from 2019 to 2020. This is crazy and it's fueled by political rhetoric, right? Like you've got yeah. the Republicans, they're Donald Trump, just failing to understand or acknowledging that they're being problematic. 
Yes. Um, overt racism is something that we can all identify mostly um, and call it out. Mm-hmm. And, and we all know it's bad. Um, I think what my piece was trying to get at and what you were trying to, what you just talked about, Erin, is like the, the, the things that are said that are, is not, that is not overtly physically harming someone. Like your friend saying, I prefer Asian women to him. He's like, that's not racism because I'm not trying to slight Asian women. It's I'm a, not, it's a, I'm appreciating them. them. Yeah. Right. And so it's like really important that we talk about and we unpack what racism is, <laughs> you know, which is like, which is diminishing a group of people, a group of individual complex, very differentiated people as like a flattened singular stereotype, especially to a white man's like sexual fantasies and a palette, which is like, there is violence coded in that kind mm-hmm. of reference. And it's dehumanizing, most of all. And, and so as that is happening, as, as we're living in a year of COVID and Trump and um, far right rhetoric feels empowered to use terms like China flu or China virus, um, it again inflames like the racism that we can blame or we can group um, one incident, an isolated incident, um, onto like an entire group of of people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so all of these things combined is, is why we're facing this crisis um, in North America specifically. Yeah, and I, I said to this person that, you know, we, ha- we all have kind of this obligation to interrogate the beliefs we have when they come to the surface, no matter how inane they may seem, right? Like, you know, just because you, it's who you're attracted to, great. But like, why am I attracted to that person? What qualities, what traits, and then really sitting with that. And I think that that's where the gap is. It's just like, people are like, oh, it's, it's not a big deal but it is when you really dig deep and a lot of people think, think are lacking that really deep introspection. Mm-hmm. And it's Well, big- can I just say, <laughs> sorry, Daniel. can I just say that preferences are shaped by what we see in media and about the feedback we get about certain things, certain people, for example. So all of that, so when people say it's just my preference, It's like, yeah, but your preference has been shaped by these Mm -hmm. factors and we are all made to see and and those factors are white supremacist, as as you were saying earlier, Tanya, about being like sort of like this this white man's desire because he is he's the one who has the power to to desire and then acquire and then own. So, like, I think that there are just many levels to that. I, I, I'm kind of inclined to think about preference among white people, uh, if we're talking about dating preferences. Mm-hmm. Um, they get the privilege for a very long time to have preferences because of qualities of their personality and qualities mm-hmm. of who they are as a single person, whereas 
the preferences your friend is talking about or the person you know is talking about and, and like racist preferences for us, for women of color, we don't get to be seen as like full-fledged people yeah. and they're not preferring aspects of who we actually are and how we actually present and understanding where it comes from. Um, they are projecting what they think we are based on what we look like. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that is, that is like a very dangerous um, and unfair way that like women of color specifically, we're talking about Asian women are treated that white people aren't. <laughs> Mm -hmm. um, you also wrote a piece recently about self-defense weapons that Asian women are carrying around because of this rise in hate crimes. And I, I've seen some of this kind of on Twitter and on Instagram where um, activists are putting together self-defense kits for um, elderly Asian people. But yeah, you, this specifically kind of was related to Asian women. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, um, so I'm part of a, a desk at work where we meet once a week and we, you know, brainstorm, but we just like kind of talk about, we, we, we try to unpack a lot of like what we're talking about today and, and, and how to write about them. And, you know, the topic of self-defense weapons came up and this is like not new terrain for people of color to do, which is like buy things to protect ourselves every time there is an escalation of any kind of crimes people buy weapons and buy tools i think with this piece what i wanted to do um instead of just saying like this is happening or like these are the tools you can get to protect yourself um is to really show that these items are more symbolic than anything like yes they can protect you and like yes they can function as um self-defense but i want to make the like the bigger statement that like look at what we have to do <laughs> like <laughs> look at what this country forces us to do because um there isn't a greater national movement and there aren't greater organizing um incentives to address these problems and to make us feel heard and make us feel safe and look make us feel looked after as a community um, and that individual women will now have to buy like a taser or like you know like those like those kitty knuckle mm -hmm. things the, the ring things yeah. yeah um in the event of an attack because women not only it says like i fear every time i leave my house i could get attacked but mm -hmm. The people around, I, I fear the people around me won't come to my defense either, or that they don't care enough to be looking out for me or to step in. Um, and that really sad reality is what kind of I wanted people to be able to look at in, in versions of these tools, um, instead of like the tools themselves as like being the thing that is happening. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, in your in your piece, you said you wrote that um, of 3,800 incidents of anti-Asian harassment um, since the start of pandemic, 68% were against women, and there's also a significant portion that have been against the elderly. Um, a lot of horrific videos floating around on social media. Uh, you know, for people who aren't Asian or actually probably aren't from a racialized community. Um, elder, 
people in racialized communities really have like high societal standing. You know, they're very well respected. They're, you know, they're, they're the matriarchs and the patriarchs of the family. Um, you know, what's your experience with that kind of from your family or, you know, in what you've seen throughout your reporting? Yeah, that's like definitely a tenet of being Chinese and it's like what's been kind of indoctrinated and and how I understand um, my place and my family, my place in Chinese society <laughs> um, is, yeah, to to look at elders, um, to, uh, to hold them with a level of respect because of the life that they lived. And it's a, it's a culture of passing down, not only wisdom, but passing down um, caretaking protections so that when um, adults become senior citizens, that the, the, the generations younger and more able-bodied are then able to give them back, return that caretaking and protection. And so when there's like been so many crimes um, against Asian elders, it's not only the the horror and and like what most people, even outside of you know my Chinese community and Asian American community, um, relate to, which is like el the elder elders are the most sensitive and the most vulnerable because they like physically can't protect themselves that well and and um, they are literally more um, fragile, you know, for lack of a better word, um, in Asia, in, in some Asian American cultures, specifically my Chinese, um, culture, it is also like, wow, what a, what a spit in your face kind of, um, act like to then disrespect elders like that. Yeah, it, it, it was pretty shocking and it was um yeah that you know the the efforts to then like corral support and corral people to like walk with um elderly women and, and men in mm -hmm. so they can feel like they can like get around like there was an immediate call to that because yeah. i think we all grew up in like that understanding that we like we're called to do that what I find particularly interesting um, when you juxtapose kind of anti-Asian hate crimes and like the, the racism perpetuated against Black people is that, you know, violence against Black people is perpetuated by the state generally. Um, whereas like with Asians, it's people in your community. So you, you really have no idea. It could be like, someone you're just walking by you on the street completely random whereas like you know it's always not always but like a lot of the time it's young black people black people in general just getting pulled over or shot by police and eric i'm really interested in you know your view on this so according to stats can um the uh, the fastest rising groups subjected to hate crimes are Asian but black and Jewish people are the ones who um, still have the most the greatest 
amount of hate crimes. I feel like black people get it both ways. We get the state and we get individual. The individual, um, because there's such a radar on anti-blackness, is kind of, it's just, it's a myriad of ways in which um, the racism becomes layered. And it there's this kind of simmer that goes along with it. It's so ingrained in our society because as Tanya was saying in the beginning, you know, you have black and you have white on the opposite end. And just by definition, those two things are opposite. So everybody else is caught in the middle. And so um, what happens then is like, I don't know, I, I feel like, I feel like there's just been a whole kind of reckoning for every community on race and racism and how it perpetuates itself is, I mean, this outward, I, I think the outward violence on Asian Americans, Asian Canadians is just so shocking in a way because it kind of just, it's like a switch turned on like that, right? So you were talking, Tanya, about about bystander intervention or the lack thereof. And I was talking to Aaron off, before you came on off the mic, about how Black women are so conditioned not to be to be devalued in society that I feel like most of us don't even look for the bystander intervention anymore. You know what I mean? Because like, who's gonna, who's gonna save us? We're not even sure about our own black man about saving us. You know what I mean? So like, there's this, there's this, I feel like I'm in like this bizarro upside down world in a way, because the combination of the political rhetoric and from obviously from the last four years of Trump, which has affected everybody globally, I think, um, plus the pandemic has created this like this this pool, this like this like swirling pool of like just racism and misogyny that is now coming out. It's not as 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 it doesn't simmer as much anymore. So I feel like it's 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 opposite to the like it's turned upside down because usually usually like the racism is more explosive with us and now I feel like it's more explosive with Asian Americans just because you know now the work's being done to really actually like get at that in a way that is so necessary I guess is what I'm saying I feel like I just rambled there but anyway the point being that um yeah, it's 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 almost the opposite now of what the norm is, I guess you could say. I think it's it's been a real like shedding of the model minority myth in that like I feel like the reason why maybe Asian Americans aren't targeted by police, even though there are still crimes, they're like police um brutality does affect Asian Americans, but because Asian Americans are not targeted as often as Black Americans are is because we've been seen as um, 
obedient and that we've been seen non-threatening as non-threatening. Um, so the moment we start to have voices that speak out against authority and that um, call out injustices and um, and and call out um, implicit uh, racism in this country is when we'll probably be more targeted. And um, I think there is like, again, an inflaming happening uh, with crimes against Asian Americans. Um, it's a, oftentimes a chain reaction. Um, people just feel emboldened mm -hmm. to act on violent tendencies. Um, but I think it's it's also, I mean, it, it's really complicated because sometimes the perpetrators of Asian crimes are not white people, but other people of color. Um, several of the attacks have been black men who've been identified as a suspect. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it, it is very complicated because it can also mean that the model minority myth works against Asian people in this like two-pronged way from either sides where black people also see Asian people as more privileged and has closer proximity to whiteness. And so there might be resentment there that they, uh, we also are symbols of power and, um, and also are also vulnerable to attack there. Um, so it's, I think there's still like a lot of research to be done and a lot of trying to figure out, you know, these, these root causes, but it is like, it is all of these things that we've talked about that why, like why I'm sitting here today, um, addressing physical crimes against Asian Americans. But I think these physical crimes, like they're not like so statistically significant that it's like there is a war waging against Asian Americans. Like we like, like if you are an Asian American, you will be physically attacked. Like chances are still relatively low that will happen. But I think what we're saying is that they are happening more frequently and like it's a symptom of like decades of anti-Asian racism and rhetoric in very different ways, you know, that we've seen from internment camps to, you know, racist depictions in media to, yeah, the like political rhetoric against COVID. And now, you know, against Asian Americans as like model minorities, these are all like micro byproducts um, of of the racism that exists in this country. And then what happens is sometimes people act out on them in violent ways. What part does American imperialism play? I'm thinking about the Vietnam War. I'm thinking about the Spanish-American War. I'm thinking about kind of like American conquest overseas, especially in Asian countries. Like, how does that play into, number one, the model minority myth, and number two, the swirl of anti-Asian racism that you were just talking about? So, like, from both perspectives. Yeah, I mean, imperialism is, like, is, like, so much a part of, of, like, foundations of racism. Um, it is, like, one national, a more powerful national um, body seizing control or seizing power from another, often like 
with Vietnamese refugees and after the Vietnam War, like the the refugee statuses of Vietnamese Americans who um, were in such dire situations that have to flee their country um, and to find refuge in this country. Um, I think maybe what you're asking Erica is like how that gets played out in the model minority. And I, I can see that, I can see that becoming, creating like a dynamic where like America can, can like, can um, pat itself on the back for receiving refugees and for, you know, doing the bare minimum to um, provide a home for people who have to flee, you know, or fledged countries and creating an environment where then uh, you instill this idea that like, well, you all have to be, um, you will have to like repent and you'll have to be the kind of like American we need you to be now that we've given you shelter, now that we've given you refugee status. Um, and yeah, I think not only Vietnamese refugees, but like many refugees develop this idea that like, well, for me to survive and for me to be taken care of and for me to be respected in this country, I need to be what the white man needs me to be. Um, and that's a, like a, yeah, imperialism is like a root of how this happens. So the, the last thing that I wanted us to talk about was kind of related to this idea of imperialism, but you know, you wrote an essay on Asian Americans who are re reclaiming their native first names. And, you know, growing up, I, I knew a lot of people who had Western names, but also had, you know, their Chinese name. And I was never given a Chinese name and I was always kind of disappointed by that. But, you know, I am, you know, second, third generation. So of course it wouldn't make sense. I don't even think my dad has, you know, a Chinese name, but um, in this essay, you, you kind of talked about your own journey with reclaiming your native name. Do you want to share a bit about that? Yeah. I mean, it was, it was as simple as like, I logged onto Twitter and instead of seeing horror, I saw something that was actually like really nice. And it was a small like movement, but um, I'm sorry, like forgetting um, the person who created the effort, but I spoke to them and they were included in the piece. She basically DM'd a, a few like Asian Americans who were prominent on Twitter and was like, do you mind tweeting this out? Um, like some people I know are doing this and this could be like a really nice way to build like some kind of community-based effort um, after the attacks um, to make us feel a little bit closer to our heritage and and to like and and I think it's like something that I've thought about a lot in my life because I have I do have two names um, but it's just not ever like it's not ever been so so meaningful to me than than after what happened in Atlanta because it just like forced me to really think about the ways in which like whiteness has like completely seized um, how I present myself, how I like, which forms of myself I choose to present, you know, mm -hmm. with the, these two names, it's so symbolic of, of how I'm conditioned in this country to, um, 
perform myself. <laughs> and so like when I saw people doing that, you know, putting their other names alongside their Anglo names in their Twitter bio, in their Twitter um, handles, I was like, that's just like, it's so simple, but it is just like so powerful right now because it just means that like right now, like these two names hold as much power and hold as much space. And what I wrote in my essay was I, I, I have been conditioned to just use my Anglo name because that's the one that people can pronounce. It's the one that will give me the least resistance and trouble in my life and sometimes even like racist comments um and through other people who did this they like talked about the same thing you know like their names were hard to pronounce kids made fun of them for having them they um exoticized them and um they just didn't want to deal with it they're like i'd rather you know like use my anglo name first as a means of survival and acceptance um, and so it, reclaiming it just means like as an adult now we get to choose how to be accepted and um, demanding to be addressed and to be accepted both by our native names and by our Anglo names is like very symbolic to um, what's happening now nationwide and, and again trying to like find and carve out the space that we hold in this country that is not white and that is not black. It's been really great to see um, some reporters in Canada from who are Indian, um, you know, making sure that and like publicly announcing on their news programs that, you know, this is actually how my name is said. So we're mm -hmm. not going to use my the anglicized version anymore. We're going to make an effort to say it properly. And then you've got, you know, Sandy Newton going, taking back her original spelling of her name. Um, so I think this is something we're going to continue seeing. H have you talked to your parents about, you know, this reclaiming of your native name? Yeah, I didn't um, have the conversation before writing that essay, but I sent them the essay after. It is actually like awkwardly and conveniently a way that I've forced us to have conversations <laughs> about this. You know, like it, it is harder sometimes. I mean, we don't see each other all the time. They live close, but like I'm not calling them and I'm not texting them or it's like hard to have these conversations over the phone and over text too. So I end up just like sending them my articles and I'm like, I would love for you to read this and give me your thoughts. And so my parents did. And so it happened after the fact that I wrote, I wrote the essay. And yeah, I think it was, um, it was good. It was really good to have that conversation finally with them since they gave me both my native names, my name name and my other, uh, or, wow, what an interesting slip. My native Chinese name and my other <laughs> Anglo name. <laughs> um, and um, yeah, I think they, what I wrote in my piece was like, they, they made, they like gave me the name for purely practical reasons. They were like, you know, we, this will just be easier on you without understanding that maybe like the ramifications of having both names and what that would mean for my sense of self and like my, and how I understood my identities mm -hmm. <laughs> in, 
this binary way now as I'm growing up. Um, and so I think them reading it helped them understand that like, wow, there was like a lifetime of what I wrote, identity crises, like very small, you know, but like things that they didn't even think about when they mm-hmm. did that. Um, and it's not to make them doubt or regret doing that. I think I have a lot of, I have like a, such a deeper understanding and even appreciation for them doing that, but it is to like, just make them realize and validate my experiences now after the fact, you Mm -hmm. know, and I think that was really like awakening to them. Um, And so it was, it was good. I think they still don't quite yet understand the depths of, um, which is why I have a therapist and that's fine. (laughs) Um, But I think- We all in therapy. (laughs) Right. Our therapists are because our parents cannot be our therapists and we'll never understand, you know, the, the layer, how layered this is. And, um, but it was a start. It was like a really productive and I would say like healing for me start to have them um, understand just like how uniquely I was raised in this country. Mm-hmm. And um, we've had like very small incremental conversations about racism and they're able to call racism by its name now. Um, but there's there's still a lot um, I hope for them to continue to confront and, 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 and validate, mm-hmm. especially when it comes to like my experience um, and even their own. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like I, I think, um, yeah, for them, it's like also reflecting on incidents, um, instances and moments in their life that are like, yeah, that was racist. <laughs> like, yeah, like I, and I, and like I, I was, um, I was profiled for that, you know, which is why this happened to me. So yeah, we're, we're having conversations and I'm grateful and I hope we keep having them. Well, I love that for you. <laughs> um, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, this was really interesting. And I'm, I look forward to reading more about your journey if you continue sharing it with us. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you for having me. And there you have it. Thank you again to Tanya for joining me and Erica to discuss her work and for sharing all that she did. Um, I really loved the end of that conversation. So we'll be back with Misogynist of the Week. So catch you later.